0: Well, I've uh, shared with the church before, I'm more of a rock and roll kind of guy, but man, you had to like that this morning, didn't you? I really appreciate everybody bringing that in. (laughs) So... Uh, appreciate the fact that you guys are willing to come, share your gifts and talents with us, help us worship, focus on Jesus Christ. Grab your Bibles as we continue to worship. Open up to Joshua chapter 7. We're, we're uh, going to keep going in our series of how to build a battle-ready faith. Joshua chapter 7. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, just the, the great opportunity to be together this morning to be able to come and worship you, um, to set aside the busyness of the week, um, to bring our cares and our burdens to you and to lay them at your feet, and to be renewed and refreshed uh, through your word and through the wor- through the worship and so God, we pray now as we as we come to a a difficult passage, uh, God, we pray that In this, you would remind us of who you are and what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the passage we do come to this morning, uh, it does contain some of the hardest verses, I think, in the Bible to understand. And and, and they're not difficult to understand in terms of what is happening. I mean, it's fairly easy uh, to follow the story. It's the why and the how come that tends to get us. I mean, it, it seems so harsh uh, to us, and, and I've had a lot of people, as they read passages like this, verses like this, just tell me, man, I, I don't get it, I, I just don't understand why it would be this way. And then, of course, the critics of the Bible uh, will take it a step further, in fact, a giant step further, and they'll claim that passages like what we're going to look at this morning prove that the God of the Bible is at best capricious. And at worst, God is vindictive, cruel, heartless, and basically an evil monster. And uh, other critics that maybe don't want to be quite that harsh towards God, uh, they would say something like, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament is a God of love and acceptance, as if the Bible depicts two different gods. So maybe by now you're wondering, well, just exactly what are verses we're going to look at this morning? What, what is it that we're going to see? And it actually begins back in chapter 6, a few verses that I skipped when we were doing the, uh, the uh, victory over Jericho. You remember that story of the conquest of Jericho, uh, God miraculously gave Israel uh, victory over this powerful, uh, fortified, defensive stronghold. And all they had to do was march around the city one time, perfectly silent, for six days in a row, and on the seventh day, march around seven times, and on the seventh time at the end, give a great shout, and God caused the walls to fall down flat, and the army was able to swoop in and do their job and have complete victory. But the verses I skipped was the parameters of exactly what was their job that they were given to do. And and those verses are found in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it says this, The city shall be under the ban, remember that phrase, under the ban, and it and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them or take them, uh, some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Okay, so now as we read that, it doesn't necessarily hit us as really being so bad up front, right? I mean, normally back then when you went to war, the main part of a soldier's pay was the spoils of the war. If you won and you conquered the people, then the soldiers would gather up everything and anything of any value at all, and they would take it and put it in a great big heap before the commander, and the commander would get to take out his portion, which was you know bigger than everybody else's portion, and then he would divide it up between all the soldiers so that everybody got an equal share, uh, well, again, equal uh, some portions were more equal than others because, uh, you know, the the captains and so forth got a bigger share than the common foot soldiers. But they all knew this and they understood that as they were going in. The point is everyone got what was a fair share for them. And by the time the conquest of the land would be over, every soldier would have this nice cache of of goods to help him and his family set up their household here in the promised land. But this, Jericho, this very first city of the conquest was not going to work that way. It would be under the ban, and and by those rules, the the people would not get anything at all. It meant that it was all completely devoted to God. It, It was a way of acknowledging that this victory was all about God. The victory was completely dependent upon Him, and therefore all the spoils of war went to Him. And as such, all the precious metals, and since back then most metals were precious in, in the way they were used, all the metals would go into the treasury of God uh, the, 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 at the tabernacle, and everything else would be gathered into large heaps and then burned as an offering before God. Everything was under the ban. And it literally means, under the ban literally means devoted to Destruction. It was devoted to be burned as a sacrifice to God. Now, again, that doesn't sound so bad to us. I mean, it might seem like a bit of a waste from our perspective. I mean, after all, this was good stuff that the people could have used in, in setting up house in Canaan, clothing and farm equipment and household items and furnitures and all that kind of stuff. But we can understand, I mean, this was a, a matter of obedience before God and it was a matter of honoring Him and, and, and uh, uh, giving Him the glory. And it was them being able to say, this victory, God, was all about you. But then the question comes up, well, what about the people of Jericho? What did it mean for them to be under the ban? I mean, you may have noticed as I read those verses that only Rahab and her household were to be spared. The clear implication, of course, is that everyone else was to be killed. And that's exactly what we see happen in verse 21. It says, they utterly destroyed, which, by the way, in the Hebrew, that's that same phrase as under the ban. They uh, they utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. So did you catch that? I mean, that's not just uh, uh, the soldiers that were killed, not just the warriors, Not just the men fighting to defend their homes, they destroyed every man, woman, and child. And this was done under direct orders from God. He was the one who declared the city to be under the ban, devoted to destruction, including the inhabitants. Long before this ever happened, clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when the people of Israel were still at Mount Sinai, where they received the Ten Commandments uh, from God, uh, he, he told them uh, how the conquest would go, and about the people that they would be encountering when they came to the Promised Land, and what they should do, uh, and um, uh, what He said to them was this, you shall consume All the people whom the Lord your God will deliver to you, your eye shall not pity them. Consume means to kill everyone, total genocide. And it is for that reason that critics of the Bible claim that God is cruel. Worse, God is evil to do something like that. And it's for that reason that I say for us. These are very difficult verses to understand. But in a way, it gets even worse because, you see, it's not just those other people, not just those people who you could say, well, those were really bad people, really sinful people, this type of thing. It's not just them. It also extended to God's own people, His chosen people. And that brings us up to chapter 7. Uh, Let me just tell you the story real quick. After the flush of victory at uh, Jericho, the next city in line to be conquered was a smaller town of Ai. And as he did with Jericho, Joshua first sent out some spies to scope out the city to see what they would need in terms of the military tactics and that kind of stuff. And these spies came back and they gave a very confident report. They said, oh man, this should be a piece of cake. It's a little town. You don't even need to bother to send the whole army up there. Just a couple thousand guys, that should be good enough. And so Joshua sent 3,000, just to be on the safe side, 3,000 soldiers up there. Uh, But when they engaged the city and and began the attack, things did not go well for them, and they ended up turning tail and running and fleeing for their lives. And the, the soldiers of Ai pursued them and killed 36 men of the troops of Israel. And, you know, after having... Complete victory, losing nary a soul at Jericho. This this was a travesty, and, and the Israelites were wondering uh, what was going on, and and, and uh, their hearts began to melt with fear. And so Joshua just fervently went before God in prayer. He tore his clothes and, and put dust on his head, which was a, a sign of deep distress and humbling yourself before God. And he began to God uh, to wonder out loud to, to God why he had allowed this to happen. I mean, after all, you had promised your people victory, and now what about that promise? And Joshua knew that the other cities in Canaan would hear about this, and that would embolden them and, and cause them to be able to unite and, and attack as well. in his people weren't trained soldiers. He knew this would cause more defeats for them and, and, and that apart from God, they, they were going to easily be defeated. And if this was the way it's going to be, Joshua was thinking, man, it would have been better for us just to live on the other side of the Jordan than to do this. And about that time, as Joshua's going through this prayer to God, God answers him in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your faith? And I'm thinking, well, Joshua, you know, he's probably thinking, why? Why am I down here prostrated before you in distress and in prayer in my face? Well, how about because we just got defeated? How about because our army turned tail and ran? We couldn't stand before the enemy. And some of our number, our friends, our brothers were killed. That's why I'm on my face praying. But then... God goes on to reveal why Israel suffered this defeat. Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have, been, they have taken some of the things under the ban, and of both stolen, they have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. And then God went on to explain to Joshua that this sin was the reason why Israel could not stand before her enemies and and suffer defeat rather than experiencing victory. And then God said, what I believe is the scariest statement of all, any uh, scariest statement that he could possibly make, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, that doesn't mean God's presence uh, would literally be gone because His presence is everywhere at all times, right? We understand that from Scripture. What it meant was that He would no longer be intimately connected with them to help them. He would no longer guide them in their decisions. He would no longer shower them with His love and His grace. I will not be with you. They would not sense or feel or know or experience His presence any longer in their lives. What could be more frightening than that? in the life of the Israelite people. Now, before we move forward in the story, I'm going to take a quick step back. Joshua, when he was praying, he had no idea that this sin had gone on. This was a new revelation that God had given us. He couldn't couldn't figure out why they had been defeated because he didn't know about this. But as readers... We would have known about this if you were reading through the, the, the book of Joshua because chapter 7 verse 1 gives the story away from the very beginning. It says, But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel." See, we knew from the very beginning that there was guilt, and we knew exactly who'd done it. But Joshua did not have this knowledge, so let's get back to Joshua. Uh, Now he knows there's sin. He he knew there was guilt, but he did not know who. And so then God told him uh, to get up from his face. uh, It's time to stop praying. Now was the time to take action. There was sin in the camp, and that sin must be dealt with. And here's how God said it would happen. Starting in verse 13, he says, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. And then God went on to explain, and Joshua passed this message on to all the people of exactly how it would happen. First, the entire nation of Israel would pass before Joshua by, 12, by tribes, you know, the 12 tribes, and one of those tribes would be selected. And then from each tribe, uh, one Each family clan would have to come up one at a time and and a certain clan would be selected. And then from each clan, the different households would come up. And from that, a household would be selected. And then all of the men of that household, which would have been multiple generations and lots of kids and grandkids and all that kind of stuff, every man would have to come up until the guilty party was singled out. And then the punishment was stated for all to know. So everybody knew right up front, this is what the punishment is. The person would be killed. And all that he stole and everything that belonged to him would be burned with fire. So I got a question for you. How do you think Achan was feeling at that moment? Okay. He, he knew what was going on. He had complete knowledge of his guilt. It was right there in front of him. It wasn't like he was confused about, you know, what the rules were. Uh, It's not like he had to wonder whether or not he had committed some sin. It was there for him in black and white. But uh, apparently, Achan still thought he could get away with it. Who knows what the reasoning was in his mind? Maybe he was thinking, well, you know, I can't be the only person who snuck a little something. And There's probably lots of guys, and, and I hid my stuff well, so probably somebody else will get caught. Well, I don't know what his reasoning was, but I have to think he probably didn't sleep all that well that night. So let's keep moving with the story. The next morning, God carries out the plan. Um. Joshua enforces what God had described. All the tribes of Israel passed before him and the tribe of Judah was selected. Well, Achan's getting just a little bit nervous now because Judah's his tribe. And and, uh, yet, you know, there's still a lot of people involved at that. And so uh, Judah uh, comes uh, before him and... and, uh, Uh, And from Judah, the clan of the Zarahites is chosen. And now Achan's really starting to get a little bit worried. I mean, that's the leader of his clan. And individual family heads start going uh, before Joshua. And Zabdi was selected. And, And from all the men of Zabdi... It's a family. Now they had to come forward, which would have included Aiken. So at this point, fear is beginning to grip Aiken's heart. You have to know that this is true. And sure enough, out of all the individual men in that family, Aiken was chosen. And Joshua then confronts him, verse nineteen, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and give praise to his name, and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Well, by that point he knew he couldn't hide it from him, right? I mean, out of all the thousands and thousands of men of Israel, he had been identified as the culprit and so he knew he couldn't hide anything so he gave a full uh, confession he said when I saw among the spoils a beautiful mantle from Shinar which later became Babylon by the way and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold 50 shekels in weight then I coveted them and I took them and behold they are concealed in the earth inside of my tent and the silver underneath it so Joshua sent several guys to go check it out to confirm this and yes everything was confirmed it was exactly as he said so the punishment was carried out as per god's orders it says then joshua and all israel took achan the son of Zerah, the silver the mantle the bar of gold his sons his daughters his oxen his donkeys his sheep his tent and all that belonged to him and they brought them up to the valley of achor joshua said why have you troubled us the lord will trouble you this day and all israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. All right, so again, did you notice? It wasn't just Achan who was killed. Not just the man who had actually stolen the silver and the gold, but his whole family with him. And God was directing Joshua on what to do. So was God being cruel? Is God some kind of monster? I mean, was it right that Achan's family was killed along with him? After all, we know the commands that, that God had actually given uh, when he was at Mount Sinai. He said, fathers shall not put, be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Well, Since we know and believe from Scripture that God is not capricious and does not contradict himself, we then can understand from this that the family was complicit in this as well. They knew what their father had done. And they went along with it, helping to keep the stuff hidden in their tent. And so they were also guilty. But even though they were guilty, we still question it, right? We say, well, why, why such a severe punishment? And going back to Jericho and looking ahead at what's going to happen at Ai and the rest of the cities of the conquest why kill every man, woman, and child? Doesn't that make God mean-spirited and some type of cruel despot as some complain? So here's what I think we need to understand as we begin to wrap up for today. The only way a person would think that way is because they do not understand or they choose not to accept the reality of two very important truths. The first is the right of God to be judge over all people. And the second is the awfulness, the complete heinousness of sin. So does, does God have the right to sit as judge over all people? I mean, I recently read an article where some young man was just lambasting God uh, because he didn't like the, the rules that God had given, and he was just uh, harping on God. And part of that was uh, a defiant statement from him says, uh, where, where, where he said, What right does God have to judge my behavior? See, to be a judge, you have to have authority, Right? In the United States, the Supreme Court justices, the highest judicial authority in the land, derives their authority from the Constitution, which they take an oath to uphold. But in distinction to that, God's authority is derived by His position as our Maker. As Creator, He owns us. And as owner, He has the right to judge us according to His standards. Psalm 24.1 reminds us, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. Everything in this world belongs to God. The ground upon which we walk, the food that we enjoy to eat, even the air we breathe belongs to God. Our bodies belong belong to Him because He made them and He is the one who gives us life. So for that reason alone, we are accountable to Him for all things and He has the right to judge. And let's understand this. He is a good judge. He is completely impartial. He cannot be bribed. And He has complete knowledge of all the details and all the facts, right? As Hebrews 4.13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. A good judge does not let the guilty go free, right? A good judge carries out the demands of the law and in this case the demands of the law are very clear for we read for the wages of sin is death and that is true for everyone every man woman and child and that brings us to the right uh, right up to the second reason people you know question god in this god's actions here because they don't understand the awfulness of sin in God's eyes. You know, as humans, even as Simon shared with us this morning, we, we tend to minimize sin and excuse it in our own lives, right? I mean, we can, if we see it in somebody else's life, it's pretty easy to judge it then. Oh, man, they shouldn't do that at all. But, but if it's in our own life, well, then we always think there's maybe some justifiable reason why we made the choice we did. I mean, there's mitigating circumstances in my life that, you know, kind of excuse this sin. That's the way we tend to do it as humans, but the reality is sin is an affront to a holy and righteous God. How bad is sin? That's, we have a hard time thinking how bad is sin because we want to make ourselves think it's not that bad. Let me, let me tell you how you determine just how bad sin is. Look at what it cost to forgive it. Think of the humiliation of Jesus as He is falsely accused and arrested, mocked and spit upon, beaten while He stands there blindfolded. Think of the pain He endured as that Roman's whip slashed against his flesh, ripping out chunks of skin and muscle, or as the nails were driven through his hands and feet, as he struggled, grasping for breath on the cross as his life and his blood slowly drained away. That's what it costs. To forgive your sin. So yes. God does have a right to judge. And he is perfectly righteous. In condemning every sinner to death. And carrying out that death penalty. And whether he uses a flood. As he did in Noah's day. Or plagues. Or the sword of the government to slay those whom he judges, he has every right to do it. And we need to understand that the real question isn't why did God mete out this judgment uh, to Jericho or to Achan. The real question is why has God held back the sentence of justice and judgment that you and I and every single person deserves. Why are we still living? Well, we get a bit of an answer to that as we look at the details of Achan's judgment and execution. Notice at the end of verse 24, it says that Achan was executed in the valley of Achor. Achor is the Hebrew word for trouble, the valley of trouble. That's where the judgment, that's where the punishment was carried out, the execution. And the truth is, every single person in this world has to walk through the valley of trouble. As sinners, we are all under the just condemnation and judgment of God, the righteous judge. But through the prophet Hosea, God said that this is what he would do for a rebellious and wayward Israel, and by extension, what he does for me and you as well. He said that he would give the valley of Acor as a door of hope. A door of hope right in the middle of the valley of trouble? I mean, a, a door is a way out. A door is a way of escape from this valley of judgment and execution. How is God going to accomplish that? Well, the answer comes in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, when Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. See, Jesus is the door of hope that is given to all of us. Just like Achan, we are all guilty. But if we choose to confess our sins rather than trying to hide them, then God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, there's one important detail that we cannot miss in the story of Achan. Did you notice that God announced through Joshua what the sin was, clearly identified sin, and He, he specified what the consequences for that sin would be. But along with that, He said this in verse 13, uh, if you caught it the first time through, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Why tomorrow? I mean, God already knew who the guilty person was. He already knew what the sin was. Why not take care of it right away? Why not do it that that day? Why not just get rid of it immediately? And I believe that God didn't because He's not only a just judge, but He's also a merciful gracious and loving Father. And He was giving Achan time to confess. Time to come forward and repent. But he didn't. He tried, along with his family, to hide and to live with his sin until the bitter end. So if there is one message from this story that we need to get, it shows us the seriousness of sin. See, we cannot justify it or take it lightly in our own lives, in the life of the church. Just as we saw with Achan, sin not only hurts us, but it negatively impacts others around us. Israel as a whole was defeated because of this one man's sin. In our BLT this week, someone put it this way they said, Sin splatters. You know, you might think of it as uh, just affecting you, but it splatters all over everyone around you. Beyond that, we know the truth that God's judgment is coming. And we are responsible for our sins. We cannot try to maintain an excuse or try to justify our sin or hide it from God. Because it cannot be hidden. But the reality is, God has given you time to repent, time to enter through the door of hope, to confess and find forgiveness, and discover that God is not only a righteous judge, but a merciful Heavenly Father. Let's bow our heads. Close your eyes. I have just a couple more words I want to say. Do we understand that God has every right to be a judge over sin? And it's not just the other guy's sin, it's ours, it's mine, it's yours. Do we understand that there are consequences? For sin that there is judgment and it is coming and do we know that there is a door of hope that God in his grace and mercy has given us the ability to be forgiven and washed clean if you've never accepted that forgiveness of Jesus Christ then this morning is the time to do that in the quietness of your heart, you can simply thank Him for His forgiveness. Coming to, to Jesus Christ and He will forgive. And if you are a Christian this morning and you've been trying to justify or hide some sin in your life, please understand you will not experience the victory that God wants until you deal with that sin. Father God, we, we are grateful for Your Word, and sometimes Your Word is hard. None of us, God, likes to talk about sin. None of us likes to admit our failures. But God, until we admit our failures, we can't find Your grace. And so, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ, for the door of hope that You have given us that we can enter into for the forgiveness that we can find by coming to the cross. And our prayer is that every person here today will have experienced that. And God, as Christians, help us to not mess around with sin, but to deal with it so that we can experience the victory that you desire for us to have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.